0: Women and Well-Being is an Edin Center podcast, highlighting emotional well-being and mental health through Jewish sources and interviews with experts and activists. Our host, Karen Miller-Jackson, is a certified matan maralah Halacha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kifun Lashirut Guidance Program for Religious Girls, and creator of Power Parsha. Just as the mikvah waters create the opportunity for renewal, we hope the insights shared here will serve as a springboard for discussion and rejuvenation.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this Eden Center Women and Well-Being podcast. This month's podcast is sponsored by Margot and Josh Botwinick as a thank you for all the amazing work of the Eden Center and the Eden Center's uniquely important contributions to the Jewish people. For Chodesh Iyar, as we commemorate Yom HaShoah and Yom HaZikaron and then celebrate Yom HaAtzmaut. I would like to take some time to think about the role of Jewish women during times of great oppression and the horrors of the Shoah. After some Torah thoughts, I'll be speaking with Lani Berman, who has researched women's lives just before and during the Shoah. We don't have a lot of women's voices recorded and preserved throughout history, yet scholars have tried to uncover some aspects of women's lives from the sources we do have. I'll begin with the Torah. The Talmud in Masachet Sotah contains a beautiful and well-known midrash about the righteous women of Egypt, the Nashim Tzidkaniot, in whose merit the people were redeemed from Egypt. This story is not told in the biblical narrative itself, yet it is certainly alluded to by the bravery of the women in Parshat Shmot, Miriam, Yochevet, and the midwives who defy Paro, Um, Yochevit hides Moshe and Miriam stands on the side making sure that he is saved and cared for by Bat Paro. In the Midrash these anonymous women go from their homes with food out to the fields to seduce their husbands. They then return home pregnant. When it is time to give birth they return to the fields to birth the children. When the Egyptians hear of this and want to kill the babies, the babies are miraculously hidden underground. The Egyptians come to the fields and plow the earth, and, uh, and then they go, leaving it completely um, wasted. However, the babies sprout forth, kind of like Cabbage Patch Kids. The children come out of the ground and go home. At the splitting of the sea, these children are the first to recognize Hashem, and they say, this is my God, and I will praise him. This midrash, besides having beautiful literary elements, strongly conveys the idea that the women had a significant role in the Exodus story. The rabbis develop what is already in the Torah story and embellish this idea. When I read this midrash, I think it gives voice to so many women who must have suffered so greatly under Egyptian oppression. And yet, they are the ones who hold out long-term faith and hope in the future. This midrash is related to another midrash about Miriam who convinces her father Amram who is then considered the Gadol Hador to be a model of optimism for the Jewish people. Amram, having heard Paro's decree to kill firstborn males, decides to separate from his wife, Yolchevet. However, the Midrash describes how Miriam says to her father, Abba, your decree is harsher than that of Paro, for Paro only decreed against the boys, and you have decreed against boys and girls. After this, Amram returns to his wife. Miriam and the Nashim Tzidkanyot provide a model of optimism in very dark times. This theme appears as well during the persecutions of the Jews in Ashkenazic Europe in the Middle Ages. While strictly adhering to the laws of Kidu Hashem, the women during the Crusades are described as having played very brave roles. Professor Elisheva Baumgarten writes as follows, Medieval Ashkenazi women are famous for their acts of martyrdom during the First Crusade of 1096 and during various persecutions that followed over the course of the 12th and 13th centuries. The chronicles written after the First Crusade recount numerous stories of women who encouraged their husbands to fight against their attackers, who led their families to suicide, and who in some cases killed their own children rather than allow them to be contaminated by the baptismal waters to which Jews were being led. The Chronicles mention these women by name and praise their steadfast belief in God, singling them out as unusually devoted to their religion and as exemplars to their faith and communities. Very dark and upsetting imagery, and yet listening to the accounts and reading the accounts certainly conveys the women's deep faith and refusal to convert or to be taken by uh, the crusaders and by the oppressors. Moving to more modern times, I think about the Israeli poetess and pioneer Rachel. Having been brave enough to visit Palestine in 1909 and 1911, she went back to Europe to study agriculture so that she could return and work the land of Israel. Delayed by war, she then returned in 1919 and was part of the early kibbutz movement to At this point, she began writing Hebrew poetry as well. Sadly, before her return to Israel, it is believed that she, she contracted tuberculosis, which a few years later cut her life short and her dreams short as well. What we have left of Rachel are her poems, some of which express the pain and loneliness at the end of her life, and many of which express her passion for Eretz Yisrael. Miriam, the Nashim Tzidkaniyots, the women of medieval Ashkenaz, Rachel, so many women whose names and stories we don't even know. We can only imagine what strength and devotion kept them going in difficult times. Their belief in the future is passed down to us through their words or through testimonies to their strength and devotion. Join me as we continue this, discuss- this, this discussion about women's lives, uh, in particular about women and their bravery just before the Shoah, with my guest, Lani Berman. Lani, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this really meaningful
2: topic. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, in preparing for today, I was thinking a lot about the context of thinking about women, Jewish women throughout history and what we know, what evidence we have. And we certainly have throughout the Torah and Midrashim, especially, and Jewish history. Some stories about women who demonstrate bravery and devotion in the hardest of times, whether it's Miriam and the righteous women in Egypt, um, or women in the Middle Ages who are fighting for survival during uh, very oppressed times, or halutzot um, during the establishment of the State of Israel. Uh, certainly, as as uh, we get to more modern times, we have more uh, uh, recorded tales from the women themselves. Um, and during the Shoah too, we, of course, have um, testimony from Jewish women about their incredible bravery. However, uh, when it comes to talking about mikvah and observance of Torah Hamishpacha. Uh, this is a topic which in general people are a little more uh quiet about. And so um so it's an incredible thing that we have this opportunity here to talk about uh the stories and evidence and um attempts to keep some form of mikvah and tarat mishpacha alive both before and perhaps even during the shoah. Um so Uh, We've heard stories about about Jews, holy Jews, trying to keep some kind of halacha, some kind of Jewish law in the camps, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, not eating chametz, even when they were starving during Pesach, or uh, really things that we can't even wrap our our heads around and imagine, uh, let alone judge. And we've also learned about the ghettos. And we know uh, as uh we've talked about that there were so so much lost during the Shoah, um including the shuls and mikvahs and such central parts of Jewish life. What do we know about this era? What um what 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 have we what have you
2: studied and what have you written about
1: um, that you can share with us?
2: Okay, so I want to start by addressing two different parts of your question from a more historical perspective. Um, When you say ghettos, and this is just more historical precision, um, first of all, in the research that I did, I differentiated between the mikvah in Nazi-occupied countries and unoccupied countries. Um, Second of all, I want to just kind of explain that with the exception of the ghetto in Theresienstadt, We're talking about ghettos in Poland and in the Soviet Union, because that's where the ghettos were. Um, And then, of course, we need to differentiate between ghettos in Poland and ghettos in the Soviet Union, because there are two different stories going on in those countries. Um, And there wasn't a specific period of ghettoization. So it started in 1939 and continued through 1943, 1944. Um, now, the third thing that I that I'm going to bring up is that many survivors and in their testimonies, many women explain that the once they were living in the ghettos, again not in every case, but once they were living in the ghettos, the food rations were so minuscule that women stopped menstruating. Mm-hmm. So, I think the reason you're asking about ghettos is because in camps, men and women were separated, so the and they were living in a in a camp, so the mikvah was not an issue. But we're talking about a very relatively short-lived period because women just weren't menstruating in the ghettos because they were starving, and we're talking about malnutrition. Um, There's a historian named Zoe Waxman who wrote a book called Women in the Holocaust, and she says that in the Vilna ghetto, for example, approximately 75% of women experienced amenorrhea, either due to malnutrition or psychological distress. Hmm. Um, yeah. So that's the first point that I want to address. The second thing is, you're right, it is well less well-known, um, and that's actually what set me on my research journey, that there just isn't a ton of information on the mikveh during the Shoah. And I started planning to write my MA thesis on this topic, only to sit in archives and libraries and discover that there's not much to discover. Um, I believe that part of the reason is that we're talking about the 1930s and 1940s, and these topics were just not discussed the same way that they are today. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, we don't really have personal records that women kept, which I'm hoping to address a little bit later. Um, But we do have testimonies from survivors who describe going to the mikvah with their mothers as young girls before the war that this was somewhat of a general practice, which I think is really interesting because that doesn't happen today. Super. Um, and this is even a whole sorry to interrupt, but a whole yeah, yeah a whole topic in the,
1: you know, to, to hide it from your daughter or not hide it from your daughter. So fascinating. Right.
2: Um so for example, Ilona Fuchs, who is from Hungary, gave this testimony. I'm gonna I'm gonna um read it in a moment for the Visual History Archive at the University of Southern California, which is the Spielberg Archive, which is more generally known, um, and I think it's what she says is so beautiful. She said, "quote It was beautiful. You could go with your mother in the winter time, and you could swim in it. Presumably, the mikveh. The mikveh was this big house. There was a mikveh maven. Always, my mother took one of us, meaning one of her, either her or her one of her sisters, and this was a special occasion. Um, so there are a few testimonies that I found in which." these women who were survivors describe the experience of going with their mother. Um, But to actually full on address your question, um, we have a section written by a rabbi named Rabbi Shimon Huberband, who was a rabbi in Warsaw. He was actually originally from Pietrikov. When the Germans invaded Poland in September of 1939, unfortunately his wife and child were killed in a German air raid and he moved to Warsaw. And he joined the Onik Shabbat archives, which was a project initiated by a man named Emmanuel Ringelblum, in which there were a group of people who were trying to collect and document what was happening to the Jews of Warsaw. They knew that they were living through a historic moment, and they began documenting what was going on in before the ghetto was even sealed, and then what, how life changed once the ghetto was sealed in November of 1940. And Rabbi Hooverband was one of the few religious members of the Onik Shabbat archives. And he wrote a manuscript called Kiddush Hashem. We don't have the entire manuscript, but what we do have, part of it, he describes the mikvah situation in Warsaw in great detail. And he writes about how before the war, there were nine functioning mikvahot in Warsaw. During the bombing in September 1939, the mikvahot were, were turned into bomb shelters. That's what they were used for. When the bombing stopped and the water supply was restored to Warsaw, they reopened and they were used by men during the day and women at night. Now, in December 1939, Dr. Schrempf, who was the Nazi director of the Warsaw Department for Health, inspected the Mikvaot and he published an article saying that the milk, the Mikva was filthy and breeding diseases. And this led to the subsequent closing of the Mikvaot and the Jews were told that anyone who used the mikvah did so under penalty of anywhere from 10 years in prison to death. And Huberman writes, this is a quote, Jewish Warsaw was left without any mikvahs and the problem of the purity of the daughters of Israel became as serious as it was in the days of the ancient Roman edicts against Judaism.
1: Hmm.
2: But that's not the end of the story. Um, At this point, there wasn't yet a ghetto around Warsaw and women could travel to nearby towns to use the mikvah there. And um, Rabbi Huberman describes the following scene from women traveling to Pruszkow, which was a nearby uh, nearby town of Warsaw. He writes, each and every day, one could witness the identical scene, Jewish women filling the trolleys to Pruszkow in the afternoon hours. The scene attracted particular attention because each woman carried a little bag underneath her arm. When the trolley reached Pruszkow, a great panic would erupt among the women. Each one sought to leave the trolley first so as to reach the mikveh earlier to catch a spot online, complete the ritual procedure, and return to Warsaw before the curfew. When the afternoon trolley arrived in Pruszków, the town was thrown into a tumult by the hundreds of Jewish women running in the direction of the local mikveh. The Gentiles, who learned from their Jewish neighbors the meaning of the daily arrival of the Jewish women from Warsaw, would burst into laughter as they watched the women race through the streets of the town. Um, I think this is a particularly evocative scene because it not only highlights the degradation and the humiliation that this mikvah experience became for this women, but they still go. And yeah. they're going every day, hundreds of women, according to Huberman's description. And even the indignity of the ridicule from the local population there's this fight to line up and the expense just to get to the mikvah, they had to have a lice pass to go on the train. They had to pay to to go on the train. It didn't deter these women from upholding Jewish practice and representing that practice for posterity.
1: Hmm. Wow. So incredible. Uh, it's almost like um, sort of by the by, we 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 kind of hear of this and the contrast with what you described in the beginning of the girl, the young woman um, going with her mother, sort of frolicking is so right. Right, such a contrast. And I'm still digesting the image of the mikvahs being closed, turning into bomb shelters and then reopening. There's something deep there in terms of we talk about the protective waters of the mikvah. There's something really quite amazing there. Um, so you've, you, you've shared some of this evidence from, um, from, from the rabbi's writing and, uh, the survivors after, um, what do you, what do you think it symbolized to the women? What do you just, it's so hard to say, obviously we don't know, but what did this, what was the push? What kept them going to, to keep, um you know, such devotion when they were being mocked and risking their lives and probably risk probably giving up some of their nutrition for the sake of going to the mikvah.
2: Um, so I can tell you that there are many records in real time of both women and men, especially from the Onik Shabbat archives, who talk about how women were so concerned for the future. Um, and, you know, you started off talking about Miriam and the women in Mitzrayim. and it's it always it's what it always brings me back to that these women are constantly thinking about and concerned about the future. Um and I think, for example, there's a there's a survivor named Vlad Kamid from Warsaw, and she talks about how her mother would set aside her bread ration to pay the rabbi to teach her son for his bar mitzvah, that she was willing to give up her food to pay the rabbis because she wanted her son to have a bar mitzvah because the Jews were constantly from the beginning, really up until the end, they were, they thought there was going to be an after and they knew there was going to be an after and they always thought they would survive and they thought their children would survive. Mm-hmm. And they were constantly concerned with, but they need to know what to do once the war is over. Um, and that's why you have so many examples of underground schools for children and ghettos and camps. That the education of children was so critical and the Jewish education of children was so critical because there was this vision and this dream of a future.
1: Wow, that is really quite an amazing image. And yes, the the uh the connection to Miriam and the Nashid and is is really quite amazing and um certainly mikvah of all things i mean it's amazing thing to think about that they were that that families and couples were keeping up intimate relations and and having that hope it really does uh does evoke that that midrash so so poignantly so um what were what were some now obviously there were going to be times when um the women couldn't go or they had to um immerse perhaps in more um busy Evid less perfect situations do we have um evidence from other rabbis and um, survivors about how women or couples navigated um these complicated and restricted times and I'll just throw in one more one more piece if maybe you haven't we're hearing it's interesting I wonder if there's also the voices of the husbands in this at all. Um, and so I'll just throw that in and tack that on as one last thought that occurred to me. <laughs>
2: um, okay, so I want to start by going back to Rabbi Huberband. He writes further in his manuscripts Kiddush Hashem, that in the summer of 1940, again, there's still no ghetto around Warsaw, but there are restrictions. There was a rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Shapiro, who rented a number of bathing areas around the Vistula River for the women so that they could immerse there.
1: I'm trying to imagine that, you know, in public, uh, presumably
2: they had to go in the daytime. Were they going in the daytime?
1: Do we know? Presumably
2: they were, or in the early, early evening. And then he talks about when the water in the Vistula was too cold when the summer was over, someone who had previously owned one of the Mikvot in Warsaw basically bribed the German police or the Polish police every month to shut their eyes and ears. And he reopened the mikvah and he heated it once a week. Hmm. Um, And this is something that we also hear in a lot of testimonies that when the ghetto was first created, it actually created a sense of security among the Jewish population because they thought, okay, now they'll leave us alone. Right now we're in our own city. We're in our own space. um, And we'll we can kind of do what we want. And this made it easier in in some ways in the very, very beginning. And the mikvah were then heated, or this one mikvah was heated every day. And there were more mikvah that were functional from the winter of 1940 through 1941 into the summer of of 1941. Mm -hmm. Um, Another area where there was a certain sense of creativity that was required was within the realm of marriage. So could a couple get married, according to halacha if the kala couldn't go to the mikvah? And there are a lot of different ways that this was approached in rabbinic responsa. Um, because when the war started, families were ripped apart, spouses were murdered, and this led to new marriages. Nobody wanted to be alone. So there's a tshuva by Rabbi Ephraim Oshri, who was in the Kavno Ghetto. And October 3rd, 1941, which was Bet Tishrei, there was an action in Kovno in which approximately 10,000 Jews were murdered, and most of them were men. And this left less than half of Kovno Jews, who were mostly women, and they were deported to the ghetto in Slobodka. These women knew that their husbands had been murdered. There was no question of Igun at that point. It was a very public massacre. Mm-hmm. But there was a rumor that began circulating throughout the ghetto that the Nazis were going to deport single women. And this led to a desperation among the women to get married and get married quickly. And they went to the rabbinic leadership in the ghetto and they asked to be married according to halacha. They wanted a rabbi to marry them. And Rabbi Oshri has a sefer, mima Makim, in which he brings in a lot of different um, questions that arose during the Holocaust. And he grappled with this because there was no mikvah. And he said, "Are we creating a leaf evir situation if women can't are getting married and they're not Torah?" Mm -hmm. Um, And he also wrote that these women he knew that they would probably seek civil marriages if they weren't, if he wouldn't conduct the marriages according to Jewish law. And he finally he he concludes that this was a clear case of suffik pikoach nefesh, and he allowed these marriages to take place. Wow. The third example is actually from Slovakia. And when I started off by saying it's important to differentiate geographically, Slovakia was not under Nazi occupation. Slovakia actually emerged as an ally of Nazi Germany. And there's a tshuva from Rabbi Yitzhak Weiss on March 28, 1942, that there was a curfew imposed on the Jewish community in Slovakia beginning at six in the evening. And this was a problem for mikvah. And women came to him and asked, if they had to go to the mikvah on Friday, she wouldn't be able to go after Shabbat. Um, she couldn't go on Motzei Shabbat because of the curfew. And then Sunday, the mikvah was closed. So they asked, could they go on Friday during the day?
1: Which would be the seventh day during the day.
2: Which would be the seventh day. But the issue mm-hmm. was, um, and interestingly, this is actually where I live now. There's no mikvah in my community. So the... Um, the compromise that was, or the halachic compromise, I should say, that was um, reached by Rabbi Riskin is that women in the dagan who need to go to the mikveh on Friday night, we go to a mikvah in another part of the frat right before Shabbat, but your husband can't be home yeah, right. when you get you home. To, and yeah. as someone who has small children, it can be very complicated maneuvering. He has to go to shul, but we have little kids at home, and this is this was an issue for the women also um, yeah. because she had to get home before. Before Shkia, she had to light candles and her husband couldn't go to Shul because there was a curfew. And how do you navigate that? Um, what's also interesting in this in this question is that while they're asking, there were deportations from Slovakia of Slovakian Jews to um, to labor and concentration camps and then to Auschwitz. Mm. And there this was a major issue. Um, and the question is, did the did the Jews know that this is this was could be punishment for being caught after curfew? You know, what what's the root of their question? But the deportations aren't mentioned in the question itself.
1: Gosh, wow, it's like unbelievable to wrap one's head around the even to be asking, you know, the halachic question. I mean, obviously we understand that this is very essential mitzvah. Um, but with such, uh, such issues of pikuach nefesh and risking of life, it is, it's, it's really just, um, incredible. It gives incredible inspiration and strength, um, to think what, what women and couples went through, um, in the run-up to the Shoah to, to just try to, to keep this hope open for the future. Really quite amazing. Um, so I hope I didn't answer (laughs) My final question for you just <laughs> but I couldn't. I, I I really um it's it's uh, I've read some of what you've written, but hearing the more detail and um and some of these uh, just instances of how they the, the challenges and the the how they had to balance things um just really makes it much more real um so what what do you lani what do you take away from these stories in terms of the mitzvah of mikvah and um obviously you know thank god we we are not in the time of such danger or risk but there are places around the world and you know and times in israel as well where observance of and mishpacha poses its challenges and um and so what, what what do we take away from these stories for devotion to mikvah today?
2: Um, so I think the most obvious modern day example is how we approached the mikvah during COVID. Um, that to me was a very evocative time. It was very scary for everyone around the world and no one knew what was happening. No one knew how contagious the virus was in the beginning or how it spread. Um, and I think many of us, many women around the world experienced either the mikvah closed completely, or there were very, there were new restrictions and, you know, it was, you were in and out and it was super quick and you did all your prep at home. Um, and I was actually writing my thesis and doing my research during COVID mm-hmm. and these very obvious parallels kept kind of leaping out at me. Wow. Um, and at the same time, obviously the two periods are, are vastly different. Yes. Um, but I think that, you know, having lived through COVID, having gone through that period, we all kind of can relate to it in some in some way. Right. Um, but I think my takeaway is kind of what I alluded to before, in that how we see throughout Jewish history, the concern that women constantly have for the future, right? Like we discussed the Midrash with Miriam, and we see it with Esther in the Gemara Megillah when she tells the Chachamim, Kitzvuni ledorot." And a more modern day example, you see it with Sarah Schneer, right? Mm-hmm. Who created a, an educational framework for religious girls because she wanted them to grow up and be religious role models. Um, and there are also, you know, countless stories of Beis of graduates during the Holocaust who were the leaders in the camps and the ghettos because they were given this framework, this foundation of sinuch and leadership, um, and we see it during the Holocaust with women who are focusing on a future. Um, and I'll, I'll read you a quote by a woman named Cecilia Slepak who was not religious, but she was in the Warsaw Ghetto. She was part of, I mentioned before, the Onik Shabbat archives. And she was interviewing women. She interviewed one religious woman um, in, uh, in 1941, 1942, before the deportations from the ghetto began. And she writes in her summary, and her analysis, in the tragic destructive whirlwind of our present situation, we can still discern signs of creative energy, the slow development and consolidation of forces that are building the foundations of the future. Women are playing an important role in the positive trends of our life. So she really recognized at that point that the women were carrying the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And, I think that, you know, the notion as a Jewish woman and a Jewish mother living in Israel, that we're all part of a link in an unbelievably strong chain. We bear this responsibility of passing on these traditions and halakha to our daughters. Um, and it's very, it's very palpable. And I think that, you know, the the phrase that we use this week, going into next week from Misho'al Kuma right, from the destruction of the Holocaust from a, a period of total destruction to rebuilding and rebuilding, building the state of Israel, that, that that's what we're doing, right? We're taking the past and we're bringing it into the future. And we'll have this to represent the future of what the women who preceded us fought so stridently for.
1: Thank you, Lani, so much for enriching our uh, Yom HaShoah and Chodesh and uh, this this period with this incredible um, treasure trove of uh, uncovered information uh, and stories. So thank you very much. Thank you.
0: This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of Mikvah as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being and healthy relationships, enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.TheEdenCenter.com to learn more about our work in making Mikva relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is a product of The Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating Share this podcast on social media and encourage others to subscribe.